Hello and welcome to the Alberta Advantage. I'm your host, Kate Jacobson, and joining Team Advantage today is Davide Mastracci, freelance journalist and managing editor of Passage, a newly launched outlet dedicated to publishing thoughtful left-wing perspectives. Davide, thank you so much for joining us here on the Alberta Advantage. Thanks for having me. So you recently authored a piece for Passage titled Don't Blame China for Your Government's COVID-19 Failures. It was published the first week of April, and we've already seen how relevant this topic really is with a number of blame China narratives circulating over the last couple of weeks. Most of the anti-China narratives rely on misinformation about the timeline of the COVID-19 virus spread and its discovery in China. And I think that would be a really great point to start in unpacking this. So could you take us through kind of the documented actual sequence of events that occurred in the outbreak of COVID-19? So the first kind of official trace or suspicion of it was on December 26th. At the time at the Hubei Provincial Hospital, the director of respiratory care there, uh, Dr. Zhang, she noticed that four patients that came in who were seeking treatment for suspected ammonia, that um, they had similar and kind of just like strange CT scans, CT images. Um, And so that kind of led her to believe they were suffering from something else. And she also played a role in combating the SARS outbreak in 2003. So she's like an expert on this sort of stuff. Um, So the next day after, you know, kind of seeing them, treating them, she reported it to the head of her hospital Um, And within the next two days, that information was passed on to the provincial centers for disease control in the province. And then that basically um, initiated full scale research into the hospital. Um, So that was kind of like the beginning, the start of it within China. Um, And then so on December 31st, um, so just a few days after she noticed those results, um, the Wuhan Municipal Health Commission, um, they issued a public notice. And then that same day, the officials there um, informed the World Health Organization. So all of that happened um, before the start of the year. Um, And then on January 1st, they shut down the market where they believed that the virus may have crossed over to humans. Um, And it just kind of went from there step by step. So for example, like by January 7th, China had isolated what they thought was a new coronavirus. They weren't sure at that point. And by January 12th, they shared the genetic sequence for it, which basically allows countries around the world to come up with diagnostic tests. What we're really looking at here, you know, given the evidence is that China did pretty much exactly, you know, what any reasonable nation state could have done given the circumstances. And they actually took several actions really proactively to help the international community respond to the virus, things like sharing the genetic sequence of the novel coronavirus. Would you say that's a fair assessment of China's response? Yeah, I definitely would say that. But more importantly than what I would say, um, the World Health Organization has said that as well. Um, You know, in their responses to China's handling of it so far, they said things like, in many ways, China is actually setting a new standard for outbreak response, or that the remarkable speed with which Chinese scientists and public health experts isolated the causative virus, established diagnostic tools, and determined key transmission parameters provided the vital evidence base for their strategy, gaining invaluable time for the response. So based on what the experts are saying, they not only did 
like a decent job of it, but they did a really good job of it, which mm-hmm. gave the rest of the world a bit more time than they may have otherwise had if it had started somewhere else. Although, of course, we, you know, you can never really be sure what would have happened if it had started elsewhere. Absolutely. And in your piece, your introduction draws from Michael Parenti's 1997 book, Black Shirts and Reds, where Parenti writes that in the United States for over 100 years, the ruling interests tirelessly propagated anti-communism among the populace until it became more like a religious orthodoxy than a political analysis. During the Cold War, the anti-communist ideological framework could transform any data about existing communist societies into hostile evidence. Now, right now where we're living, you know, it is almost 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union. Do you think that this kind of anti-communism that Parenti was writing about still influences the way in which China is being discussed, particularly by pundits and in mainstream news sources? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I've been monitoring the media coverage and political coverage of China, of their response to COVID-19, and following it, that chapter that he wrote on the Soviet Union, it was mostly on the Soviet Union, it immediately came to mind because of how many similarities they were and, and how strong they, they were. So um, a few that I talk about in the piece is basically just how like anything that could be reported about China is basically spun in a way to make it negative, regardless of what the thing is. So uh, um, a few examples from my piece, I say that when the Chinese government had yet to put millions of people into lockdown, journalists said it was because they cared about their image more than fighting a pandemic. But then when they did enforce a lockdown, they didn't do it to fight the pandemic. It was supposedly like a totalitarian move for power. Or, for example, when they were reporting hundreds of deaths a day, it was proof that their government was incompetent because the numbers were just so bad, so awful. But then when the death counts went down, then that became, oh, they must have been lying about the numbers the whole time. Or another one is that when China hadn't sent aid to other countries yet, they were portrayed as kind of cruel. But then when they did send aid, they were portrayed as like engaging in propaganda efforts. And so that section of my article was based directly on what I read and what I've been reading from media outlets, where you see kind of both of these positions for each point of data laid out and sometimes by the same people too. So, <laughs> And I think this is really important because it can be really tempting for people who are kind of steeped in and educated in, you know, a liberal capitalist society to think that anti-communism is a response to material conditions or anti-communism is a response to seeing and learning things about communist societies rather than what is the truth that you've outlined in this article, which is like anti-communism is a political orthodoxy through which the world is filtered, like regardless of the truth of that and regardless, you know, of how communist the societies being discussed actually are. Yeah, exactly. And in monitoring the news coverage of this, the communist angle, so like discussing China as a communist country, regardless of what whether people think they are a communist country or not, um, that has been consistent. That has been there in almost every article in the headlines. They've really been uh, portraying China as a communist state. And so that's why that passage from his book seemed really relevant to me, because regardless of how China is viewed generally, in this case, it's really being portrayed as kind of like um, an evil communist menace that is here to 
you know, disrupt the rest of the world. That's how it's being portrayed in Canadian media outlets. And I did focus for my article primarily on Canadian outlets. So in those outlets, what are some of the highest profile false narratives circulating about China that you think need to be corrected? One that was very prominent early on and is still kind of being shared around um, is that China imprisoned a whistleblower who was trying to kind of tell the world the truth about what was going on. And that's just not accurate at all. So what actually happened was that the doctor that people are talking about when they say that they imprisoned a whistleblower, Dr. Lee, he was an ophthalmologist and not an epidemiologist. He initially thought that there was maybe a SARS outbreak going on. And so he shared that claim Um, along with patients' medical records in a private WeChat group with a few people, like a few of his colleagues, um, on December 30th. And he didn't share it to any like hospitals or public health organizations. So it's not like he was whistleblowing. And then a few days later, once a screenshot from that group leaked and it caused kind of panic because people thought there was a SARS outbreak, um, he was asked to come into police station um, just to kind of say like, hey, you're spreading misinformation. This isn't a SARS outbreak. We're asking you to please not do this because it's creating unnecessary panic. Um, And he agreed to that and he left. So he wasn't arrested or imprisoned. And that was kind of the end of it. Um, but the main thing here is that this is portrayed as like somebody who was trying to tell the truth and China was ignoring it. So as a result of that, uh, the world's response to COVID-19 got delayed, which caused deaths. And that's not true at all, regardless of the, the, the false parts of the narrative that I just discussed. This all happened after the narrative that I started off the episode telling you about. So the doctor that did discover it, officially Dr. Zhang, by the time that Dr. Lee had shared those photos in the WeChat group, she had already brought it all the way up to the like high levels of the Chinese government. So they were already on it. Um, so the idea that China did this and that this set back Um, The response worldwide is just completely false. But of course, it's a narrative that, you know, media outlets like to run with, especially when it comes to kind of uh, countries like China, you know, especially after they probably just all watched the Chernobyl uh, series on HBO and kind of like the narrative (laughs) that was in there and wanted it to apply here. And, you know, because they are saying that, oh, this is going to be China's Chernobyl moment. And I know that's what they want it to be, but it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. So, So that's one of them. But the main, I would say the main thing of the falsities, they they focus on the idea that what China did basically led to what's going on in the rest of the world. And that if China had acted differently, um, what would be happening in the rest of the world wouldn't be the case. A lot of the kind of falsities focus on basically caring about the lives of people outside of China. Most of them, maybe at the beginning, they cared about people within China. Um, Since then, that's not really the focus. And when we look at that idea, the idea that, you know, China did something wrong, and as a result of that, people around the world are suffering, most of the false theories kind of branch out of that. And that's also completely false. And in my article, I give a couple of examples of countries that dealt with it very, very well that are much closer to China, showing that there was basically no predestined outcome for any country in the world, that any country in the world could have dealt with it properly, but their failure to do so 
Yeah. And I mean, obviously, I'm not an epidemiologist or an expert in these types of things. But from where I sit, it looks like what happened is China actually bought the rest of the world a lot of extraordinarily precious time. And we, speaking here about North America, absolutely squandered it and failed to do anything with the time that China afforded to us in in fighting off COVID-19. And and like I mentioned, that's what the World Health Organization said as well. Um, So for example, a February report from them noted that in the face of a previously unknown virus, China has rolled out perhaps the most ambitious, agile and aggressive disease containment effort in history. And in my piece, like I mentioned, I kind of look at a couple of different countries. And one comparison that I looked at, if you want me to go into, is between the U.S. and South Korea, because they both got their first confirmed case on January 20th. And looking at how they dealt with it, you can really see how much of their outcomes had to do with domestic policies and not with how China handled it. Yeah, I think one thing that's really important to note is that, you know, China isn't the only country that has dealt with this fairly well. Vietnam and South Korea have also uh, dealt with the novel coronavirus in really impressive ways, especially uh, compared to countries like Britain, America, Italy, even Iran to a certain extent. Could you talk a little bit about the response uh, in South Korea and in Vietnam? Yeah, um, so I'll go through South Korea first. So like I said, uh, US and South Korea both had their first confirmed case on January 20th. And so I'll use the stats from my article, which came out April 7th. So at that point, South Korea had only, well, not only, but had 10,000 cases and 192 deaths. And the U.S. at that point had 367,000 cases and 10,000 deaths. And right now they have... 880,000 cases and almost 50,000 deaths, while Korea still has a number very close to the one I just mentioned. And the difference was not because of anything China did, but because of how they approached it. So for example, South Korea did a massive amount of tests. And so they, they had a really rigorous testing system set up. And so for example, as of mid-March, they had tested more than 290,000 people while the U.S. had just done 60,000. And when you account for their population differences, um, South Korea had done 31 times more tests than the U.S. And the Korean tests were really, really simple for people to do. So, for example, um, you could get them in driving centers. So you would drive through, you would get the test for free. And then within, you know, 6 to 12 hours, you would get the answer by text or email. So that's like a huge difference from you know, what the case is in the U.S., uh, where either you can't get tests or the tests are really expensive. So even if they are available, they're just out of limit for you financially. In terms of like South Koreans were encouraged to wear masks, uh, those masks were readily available. You could get them from the pharmacy. They didn't really run out of supply, as far as I know. While the U.S. had a shortage of super important equipment, masks, even for the frontline healthcare workers that need it absolutely the most, um, and that led them to, you know, hijack shipments of masks intended for other countries, the states within the U.S. fighting amongst themselves. And so South Korea is a really good example, but Vietnam is also a really good example. And the v- Vietnam as an example has gotten less attention, um, I suspect, because Vietnam is closer politically to China than South Korea. So highlighting that as a good example wouldn't really you know, do the same thing for people. But Vietnam, a population of around 95 million, 
At the time I wrote my article, they had zero reported COVID-19 deaths. And I think that's still the case now. I don't think that has changed. And what they did, because they have kind of less resources in Korea to do mass testing, but they just did really aggressive tracing measures. They did heavy quarantines and put them in early. They kind of conscripted like medical students, doctors, nurses to all come on and fight the virus. So more of like a communal response. And so both countries dealt with it very well. And If you look at their proximity to China, any reason that the U.S. could give for what China did, making their response bad, could apply to South Korea or Vietnam exponentially, I think. But it didn't. And that's because they, their governments were able to deal with it better, while the U.S. and, you know, not just the U.S., um, other countries as well, basically, like right now, it's in terms of highest deaths, it's the U.S., Italy, Spain, France, and U.K. So there's a clear pattern there of what countries aren't dealing with this well and which ones are. So you've mentioned some of the highest profile false narratives that are circulating right now. Things like China imprisoned a whistleblower. They didn't act fast enough. They're globally responsible for the crisis. Now we're seeing new ones develop, like they grew this in a lab, etc. Who in Canada's media establishment have you seen propagating these false narratives? And are there any particular individuals you feel the need to name and shame for spreading these falsehoods? What I've been doing since the start of this is I've been using the uh, ProQuest database. So you can basically look through the archives of any newspaper in Canada, everything they've published. So I've been going through that for the um, National Post, Global Mail, Toronto Sun, Toronto Star, uh, Ottawa Citizen, and a couple others. And probably won't surprise you, but the two outlets that have published by far the most kind of like opinion analysis pieces blaming China in one way or the other um, are the National Post and the Toronto Sun. So as of right now, um, so as of a couple of days ago, because I've been recording day by day, um, I've recorded about almost 60 articles um, that kind of fit into this narrative. And of those 60, 35 of them have been from the Toronto Sun. Um, and about 15 have been from the National Post. So it's kind of the usual suspects in terms of papers. Um, there's been a few from the Globe and Mail. The Toronto Star has maybe had a couple, but it's been primarily the Sun or the Post. And of course, um, you know, those post media outlets, they publish the same piece um, across the chain as well. So, you know, having the Post or the Sun publish so many articles is particularly dangerous because they have such a big monopoly and so many chains um, that it can really spread. Um, in terms of like individual people, this probably also isn't surprising. Um, Terry Glavin, Glavin oh. um, you know, he's, he's always there. Um, and he's has about six or seven articles right now, not counting the ones that are published in multiple places, but even more than him. So, Brian Lilly at The Sun, he has 10. So 10 either articles or videos that are focusing on China. What I'm doing now is kind of charting them out by date. So you can kind of see how many more get published each week. And the chart is kind of starting to resemble what the charts for COVID-19 look like. I mean, at a certain point, it just, it just skyrockets um, as the narrative shifts to kind of focusing on China. And I mean, the headlines of these pieces are bizarre. I mean, they're, they're attacking China from all different sorts of angles. But you even have really, really bizarre stuff out there. Like there's a couple articles 
actually treating the idea that China created this virus in a, in a bio lab seriously, like focusing the whole article on that as if it's like a legitimate question that needs to be answered. So, for example, uh, one of the headlines was wet market or bio lab? We need answers. Or did virology lab or market unleash COVID-19? And then you have like the, the really anti-communist ones, which are like this communist regime has, this isn't a direct headline, but this communist regime has kind of caused so much carnage in the world and it needs to be eliminated. It needs to be eradicated. It needs to be gotten rid of. Canada needs to do something about it. Uh, which is kind of hilarious to me. I don't know what Canada can do <laughs> given the power imbalance between Canada and China. But um, yeah, so you, you have it really uh, coming at all different sort of angles. And the narrative has just developed as time has gone on. Like in January, there was a couple pieces. In February, there was maybe like seven. In March, there was maybe like 15. And then April has just gone crazy. I mean, there was like maybe 15 to 20 within a couple of days in April. So... Why do you think it's important to call out these falsehoods when they're being propagated by the mainstream media? And how does it relate to our broader project on the left of trying to build a better and socialist world? So the first thing I would say is just, you know, there are falsities, so it's important to show that they're wrong. That's just like something that's generally good to do. Um, But when we look at the ideological function of what those falsities do, it becomes even more important to debunk because the way I see it going is that this narrative is being really uh, drummed up in order for basically distraction to be given so that people focus on China instead of focusing on, you know, what our governments have done improperly here or what's wrong with our systems here. And that kind of distraction, it does sort of, it does two things, which I think are important to avoid, especially as leftists. So the first, I think, if if the media of politicians can divert outrage from, or like build this false narrative on China, it leads to less outrage from, from us against our own governments and distracts it to China. And that's not really useful because that's not where the blame lies. And it's already working. Like Pew has put out a few polls in the States that already show that the public view of China has dropped uh, considerably. Mm -hmm. So the first is that basically it will lead to less outrage against our own governments, which I think is crucial um, for helping to save as many lives as possible because the public putting pressure on the government, whether it's, you know, to produce more protective equipment, whether it's to help people that are locked in, um, all of that kind of stuff is important to save as many lives as possible. So, you know, the, the outrage needs to be where it is, you know, justified, which is domestically. Um, but then the other thing, kind of the more broader scale thing, and this is what Parenti talks about in his essay as well, which is why it seemed also relevant to bring up um, in mine, is that um, if the narrative around COVID-19 is that all the death and destruction was caused by a socialist government, that's kind of like a roadblock to fighting for the sort of socialist world that we want to see that we hope can emerge from this. Because domestically within Canada and a lot of countries, people are seeing an opening Um, an opening to push for policies that we've wanted for a long time that will save a lot of lives now and in the future. But these are socialist ideas. And so if anti-socialists can portray this as a pandemic that was caused by socialism, 
that can kind of help prevent these demands from becoming popular uh, once the pandemic is over. And like Parenti mentions with regard to the Soviet Union, but I mentioned with regard to China, it doesn't really matter whether you think that China is socialist or not, because China is being portrayed as socialist, as communist in the media. And so that portrayal kind of, um, I guess you could say, trickles down to anybody that is fighting for socialism in one form um, or another. And so I think in the past, um, liberals um, and a lot of leftists made the mistake of kind of engaging in what Parenti calls leftist anti-communism against the Soviet Union. Um, And in this context here, I think kind of going along with this narrative on China uh, would effectively do the same thing. So I think mm-hmm. it's important to kind of debunk this narrative and to work against this narrative for all of those reasons. Yeah, and I think one thing that's really important to point out here is just like you point out that the rhetoric on China is functionally anti-communist, whether or not you believe, you know, China is a communist or a socialist country. I think that's something that those of us who are on the left need to internalize when it comes to our own politics, because you might be um, listening to this now and thinking like, oh, well, I'm not a socialist or I'm not a communist. So whatever critiques the mainstream media has of China as a socialist or a communist project don't apply to me. Like I vote for the NDP or I'm a trade unionist or I'm a social democrat or whatever you might be thinking is that as Parenti notes and as you know in this piece, you know, it doesn't make any difference whether you call yourself a communist or a socialist or you don't. You are always going to be red baited by conservatives and by capitalists as soon as you start fighting for social change, even if you would never describe yourself that way. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's important not to just kind of avoid or join in with the anti-China bashing, but to kind of um, condemn it where you see it, especially because it's based on falsities and especially because regardless of your views on China, I think it's pretty clear that they have done a good job. So even if you don't think China is like a socialist state, I think it's very obvious that there's a lot that we can learn from them with regard to this in specific and maybe in a lot of things in general. It, opens up that possibility. So That all sounds absolutely awesome. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about Passage or about the piece you wrote that you want to get into a little bit more? No, I think that covers uh, most of the stuff. I'm going to keep following the anti-China stuff. So I'm going to keep monitoring the articles that come out and how many come out because I see this as definitely being a developing thing. I guess the one thing that I'll say is since publishing my article, My article is focused on media outlets, but since publishing my article, um, a lot of Canadian politicians, so mainstream politicians, have really started to focus um, on the anti-China narrative. So I've been slowly starting to keep track of figures like that as well. So this ranges from somebody to like Andrew Scheer, Peter McKay. There was that guy that we just saw on Twitter, Derek Sloan, who's an MP, who attacked Theresa Tam saying that she's, we can't trust her. She's, you know, associated with the WHO. So therefore she's actually in control by the communists um, because she's Chinese. So uh, we're really starting to see that narrative spread beyond the media. It's starting to become dominant in politicians, which was the case in the US, but is now becoming uh, more entrenched here as well. So I'm going to keep following that. And also, you know, just to see if it kind of goes over to the liberal side of things. Because right now it's been, in terms of politicians, it's been primarily conservatives, but I have a feeling that within a, you know, a bit of time, 
uh, liberals are going to start engaging in that as well. Well, in that case, thank you so much for joining us here on the Alberta Advantage. If our listeners want to follow you and your work, where should they look? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, D-A-V-I-D-E-M-A-S-T-R-A-C-C-I, David Mastracci on Twitter. Um, and then you can uh, read Passage, which is at www.readpassage.com, where we publish everything. Awesome. Davida, thank you once again for joining us. It was our pleasure.